I've been married 31 years. This is the longest I've ever spent with my wife in 30 years because I travel so much and, and it's been fantastic and we still like each other. <laughs> you know, and Elizabeth was part of BNI. I met her. I don't know if you know this, but I met my wife in BNI. It was the best referral I ever got. <laughs> she was a member of a chapter. And we met at a leadership team training that I did. You know, she was very active in the business for a long time, but uh, she, you know, we had kids. Yeah. She went that direction. And I, I traveled. I mean, I have 2.3 million miles on just one airline. <laughs> so, so you're more time in the air. It's hard to calculate how much time in the air, but I calculated based on the number of flights I do a year, roughly how many hours I've spent in an airport waiting. <laughs> and it came out to nine months of time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It was over nine months in an airport, just waiting for flights. <laughs> I was in an airport. I had nothing to do. I was wondering how much <laughs> do, time I've spent in airports. Do, do you think that's the modern equivalent to a Buddhist monk of sitting in the airport and reflecting, <laughs> waiting? Like maybe that's actually the, the modern version these days. <laughs> <laughs> it might be. Hello, my friends, and welcome to Backable for another week. That voice you just heard was Dr. Ivan Meisner, a name I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with. Known as the father of modern networking, he is the founder and chief visionary officer of BNI. Now, last year alone, BNI generated almost 12.3 million referrals, resulting in an astounding $16.7 billion worth of business for its members. Now, Dr. Meisner has an impressive list of credentials to his name. He's a New York Times bestselling author who's written 24 books, including his latest, Who's in Your Room, which we discuss in the podcast. He's also a columnist for Entrepreneur.com, has been featured in Forbes, the LA Times, Wall Street Journal, and New York Times, as well as numerous TV and radio shows, including CNN, BBC, and the Today Show on NBC. We had a great discussion exploring his journey and the challenges he's faced building the world's largest business networking organization. We also discussed the mindset needed to create a business of such significance and the people have influenced him along the way. Hope you enjoy. So I might jump into it if that's okay. I'd like to thank you for your time and I really appreciate how much your time is being used at the moment, particularly during the 2020 challenges and the 2020 opportunities that we're talking about. And I really appreciate you being on Backable and helping all our members just get a better understanding of the things that it takes to become a top performer. And as we said, we've got nothing but the most high respect for you as a person and what you've been able to achieve and still achieving. I wonder if we could start going back prior to BNI, and which was in the sort of mid-80s. You were a management consultant at that time, and I read a very interesting thing during our research about losing one of your big clients as a catalyst for a change in the way that you saw it. Do you mind taking us back there and, and talking a little bit about that? Because I think a lot of people can relate to starting their business off with a, a major client with major revenues and then suddenly being forced to get another one. <laughs> it was, you know, I think sometimes um, the biggest challenges we have in life, if we go about it and dealing with it in a healthy way, can lead to some of the biggest opportunities. And um, I lost a major client who I just assumed would renew his contract, but I didn't know his financials. And he was basically robbing Peter to pay Paul. And, uh, you know, it just wasn't, he was losing money. Although I was making money for him and creating a yeah. marketing department, he was just overextended. And so he didn't renew my contract. And I was dumbfounded. 
and I had just bought a house. <laughs> and I had a mortgage that felt this yeah. big. And I mean, literally two months earlier, I bought the house. And, yeah. and I, was, uh, I was shocked. And, you know, I think B&I is a great example of necessity being the mother of invention. I had gone to a lot of networking groups that were incredibly mercenary. I didn't like those. Yep. You know, I needed a shower afterwards. And then I went <laughs> to these ones that were just socials, happy hour and hors d'oeuvres. And those yeah. were a waste of time. And so what I wanted was, I, I, need, I realized I got most of my business through referrals. Yep. I wanted to form a network. But my vision really, and I, you know, I'd like to tell you I had this vision of a global organization, but I just wanted one group. And, <laughs> and I put together people I trusted. They trusted me. I would refer them. I hope that I hope that they would do the same for me. And we started that one chapter in 1985, January, and um, we had people come who couldn't join, and they said, "This is incredible. I could get a ton of business. Would you help me open up my own group?" And I actually said no <laughs> to the first few people. I was like, "No, this isn't what I do. I'm a business consultant." And they talked me into it. I opened up a group. <clears throat> At the end of the year, we had 20 chapters, really without trying. And that's when it hit me that I had struck a chord in the business community that I did not see coming. Yeah. I was young. I was 28 years old. I knew I needed referrals and I needed a network, but I didn't know that most businesses had the same kind of challenge. Sure. And so I was like, all right, I better pay attention to this. And it was uh, in December of 1985 that I sat down between Christmas and New Year's and I wrote my plan to scale the organization. Today, we have over 9,700 chapters in more than 70 countries all around the world. Absolutely incredible. I think I read that last year alone was $16.9 billion of closed business. I mean, <laughs> it's a small country, B&I. It's, it's, yeah, small... it's twice the size of Liechtenstein. <laughs> now, I know it's a small country, but still, how cool is that, that we could, we have double the GDP for our members that Liechtenstein has. I'm looking for a bigger country next year. But that <laughs> In terms of that, and I think one of the other exceptional pieces of information that we uncovered is that you've essentially had 30 plus years of continual growth. A J-curve yeah. on that scale is unheard of. Yeah, I don't know too many companies that have 35 years of consecutive growth. And here's the really interesting yeah. part, even during the recessions. In every recession, our membership went up. And I think one of the reasons for that is um, that we got pretty good at saying to people, look, during a recession, you need your network more than ever. The yeah. last thing you want to do is step away from a network. And so membership went up because people realized that you know, someone might let go of a vendor, but they're a little hesitant to let go of a friend. And you maintain, maintain those relationships and you're going to not only survive a recession, but thrive. And so our membership has gone up. Now, COVID, we'll see what happens. Uh, I can tell you this, since COVID hit, our number of chapters went from 9,600 to 9,700 wow. since COVID hit. And um, so the, our chapter size, we, we're continuing to open chapters, which is amazing because today more than ever, you need to activate your network, you need your network. It's such an interesting thing. I mean, obviously, we're living through a, an exceptional economic time for all of us. And, and we've taken the position this is the opportunity of our generation, regardless of whether we can take advantage and we don't want people to feel you know, like we're looking at, but we, we must as entrepreneurs look for the advantage. I've noticed particularly in these in networking groups that they've gone from essential business partners now to essentially the support groups. I mean, just having yeah. that familiarity to be um, open, honest, transparent, it's an incredible byproduct, isn't it, of good relationships? It is a byproduct because it was not what I anticipated when I started yeah. network. I didn't, I didn't think we're going to start this network so people could really build bonds and friendships. Yeah, yeah. I knew the relationships were important, but it ends up that that's one of the absolute critical factors for people staying in a chapter 
is the friendships and relationships that they build yeah. are uh, as important as the referrals that they get. You mentioned the exponential growth when you started. I mean, going to 20 chapters in the first six months is, is pretty incredible for any type of new venture. Yeah. What do you think the essence of the cord that was missing in business sort of in the mid-80s? Because I understand really what you're talking about is you were looking for a way to grow your business. You found a sales and marketing strategy that would probably work for you. But it essentially, it was more than that. I think the, the reason, there's two things. Uh, one is the reason that I think it, it grew so much is that we don't teach this in colleges and universities anywhere in the world. Yeah. We don't teach networking, social capital, emotional intelligence. And I think what we did was we provided a platform for people to generate a referral-based business, a system, a process. And uh, people were much hungrier for that. I mean, again, I was 28. I didn't know. I, <laughs> I, I, I thought... I thought everybody had that worked out except me. And I discovered that actually most people didn't have it worked out. So I think that was one thing. And, and I think on a personal level, I have always believed that talking about scaling a business, I've always believed that ignorance on fire is yeah. better than knowledge on ice. <laughs> I was the poster child yeah. for ignorance on fire. Okay. I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> I, you know, I knew how to run a business. Yeah. My doctoral work is in organizational behavior. So I understood that, but I didn't understand networking. And so to be really candid, the first year, I kind of method acted my way through the process. But one of the things I did is I wrote everything down. If it worked, I wrote it down. If it didn't work, I wrote it down so that wow. I could train people on what to do and what not to do and why. And um, that made a huge difference in being able to scale the company over time. Do you think that's part of your superpower, Ivan? I mean, a lot of people, particularly in these networking groups, have great ambition. But you're talking about the first summer, or for us, the first summer after you've launched BNI, writing a strategic plan. For us, we noticed that that's probably a gaping hole of a lot of people that may not have been formally trained in business environments. You've obviously come from a background of business, but do you think that's a key thing for particularly planning early for scale? Was it always a plan for the scale or was it trying to, in the first year, just solidify what you've already built? Well, that first year, I mean, I just kind of went through it until the end of the year where I was like, wait a minute, see, between Christmas and New Year's for me, I have always taken uh, anywhere from a few days to a week off and assessed my life and my business. And, you know, I, I like, where do I want to be in five years? Where do I want to be in 10 years? Yeah. How was last year compared to my plan? And that particular year was like, what happened? Yeah, this yeah, was yeah. not in my plan at all. And that's when I understood the difference in real terms between push marketing and pull marketing. Push marketing where you're pushing things up a hill, pull marketing where you're just getting pulled through the marketplace. And I thought, yeah, I got to pay attention to this because I've never, I've mm. read about this. I've never seen this. And that's when I realized that we don't teach this. And that's probably why it's important. And so I started writing about it. Now, you ask a question that I'm almost never asked, my superpower. And yes, I think I have a superpower. And here's, here's what it is. I am a dog with a bone. <laughs> I am one of the most persistent people you might ever meet. I will take an issue and I will work it and work it and work it and work it until I get it to where I want it to be. Or come to the realization that I need to maybe take a different tact on it, which sometimes you have to do. But if I have a superpower at all, it is that I am a dog with a bone. Have you always had that superpower? Or is this something that's developed in your business life? Um, I think I've always had it. Uh, I embraced it as I began my business. 
And my wife will tell you that's both good and bad. <laughs> in a relationship, it can be both good and bad. Uh, but generally speaking, um, it has it has served me well. And I think that, you know, everybody's kind of got to get good with whatever their superpower is. Everyone has a superpower. They have something that's a strength. And you learn how to work that strength uh, without abusing that strength. Because one of the potential downsides of being a dog with a bone is you can really tick people off. Make yeah. them really mad. Yeah. You know, if you just keep coming and coming. So counterbalancing that, when I was 13 years old, so yeah, I always had this because when I was 13 years old, my mother gave me, and if I was, if I was talking to you from my uh, lake house, I, 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 my yeah. main office, I'd, I'd show you the paperweight that my mom gave me when I was 13 years old. I still have it. And the, the paperweight says, diplomacy is the art of letting someone else have your way. <laughs> <laughs> and my mom gave it to me and she said, honey, I love you, but you are a bull in a china shop and you just knock people over and you have to learn how to be more diplomatic. And she said, this is about collaboration, not manipulation. Well, you got to learn how to collaborate with people if you ever want to get anywhere. Probably the best bit of advice I ever had because wow. the upside of a dog with a bone is that you can also tick people off. And so I've always throughout my life tried to balance that and to be diplomatically guiding issues and collaborating rather than telling people what to do. What an incredible reflection from being 13 as, you know, a bull in a china shop to give us gain. What an evolution in, in any history. For those who don't know that, particularly a BNI culture, and if you've ever been into an environment, it's real. It's not one of those corporate tags on a wall and everyone walks past. There is a culture of that, which is people are so giving. I mean, now how have you cultivated that on a global scale? Well, thank you. Let me talk about Giver's Gain and then yeah. let me answer yeah, that question because I think it's an important one for anyone that wants to scale their business. Uh, Giver's Gain is our, is our principal core value. It's one of our seven core values. It was the first one we created. And it, it's about being there to help other people. And by helping other people, they help you. And the key here is that Giver's Gain is more than a phrase. It's a way of living one's life. It's a perspective to view and interact with the world. It's an attitude, not an expectation. Mm. And when it's applied properly, I think it'll change your life. And when it changes enough lives, it'll change the world. And that's what I tried to do um, by implementing Giver's Gain as one of our core values. Now, you talk about core values making a difference in a business. I really thought about this because I think mm. I believe culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I believe in strategy, but culture is the secret sauce. And here's how I went about creating the organizational culture that we have. Culture begins with observing processes in your business that work. Those processes become traditions. They're the things we tell stories about. Well, when I started BNI, I did this and we had this result. And yeah. you know, I wrote things down, things that worked, things that didn't. Traditions become your core values and core values create your culture. Processes to traditions, traditions to core values, core values to culture. That's the way you consciously create the kind of culture that you want in an organization. And if you're not creating the culture as the founder mm. or one of the executives, trust me, someone else in your company is, and you may not like it. And so <laughs> it's very important that you do your best to be a culture champion and lead the charge on the culture of the organization. 
Was that a difficult process as, you know, you're going through obviously an exponential growth phases over the last 30 years, essentially. But was that difficult to, I'm hesitant to say manage that process because it's essentially the opposite of what we were talking about from culture, but actually curating the ways in which the behaviours would reflect that? Was that something you were keenly aware of when you were looking around as you had a bigger organisation or starting to get senior teams under you? It it is difficult. Uh, You know, I had someone say to me, um, he was a retired lieutenant colonel, and uh, he said, you know, it's got to be interesting running BNI. And he gave me this metaphor that I thought was perfect. He said, "It's, it's like having thousands of people running and you're, you're going on, on either side of them, left and right. And you're saying, okay, inside the lines, inside the, okay, okay, inside the lines. No, no, everybody together. And you're just kind of running behind them and trying to keep them going. And I thought that was a great explanation of what it's like trying to grow or scale a company full of entrepreneurs. Yeah. Because yeah, you know, being eyes are all entrepreneurs, from the director who is a franchisee to the members who mostly own their own business, they're entrepreneurs, and it's like herding cats. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> interesting. We'll touch on what you mentioned with the systems and processes. I imagine, particularly for you, that was probably something that needed to happen immediately with the with yeah. the type of business that you were growing and and having entrepreneurs coming into a system essentially that you needed them to execute on while still putting, I guess, their natural flavor, which is one of the elements of why B&I is a lot of fun. You've got different flavors, but the same culture once you get in. Could you talk a little bit about the systems and process, or, or at least your philosophy on this? I know you've, you've mentioned it in past podcasts, but I think particularly for a lot of smaller businesses starting to get their first taste of real growth, it's probably something that's not respected enough. Would that be fair to say? Yeah. What happens is if you don't have a system and a process in place that is replicable, uh, people will just start creating their own stuff. And yeah. again, that's not necessarily what you want. And, and so you got to have it, not only have it in place, but you need to write it down because processes uh, and education, teaching employees is a leaky bucket process. If you teach me how to do something, some of the information leaks out. And if I teach someone else that same thing, more information leaks out. And when they teach someone else, even more leaks out. And so that by the time you're on the third or fourth generation, you have a half a bucket of information. Yeah. And when that happens, people start throwing their own stuff in. And then it's not what you designed. And so processes are all about helping to stem the tide of the leaky bucket. And so I realized that early on and tried to put everything I possibly could in writing so that we were all rowing in the same direction with the same purpose, using the same systems. You know, you're still entrepreneurs. It'll get off track a little bit, but I think they go over the lines and you got to bring them back in. But I think that's the goal. I found in a couple of my businesses, I found that conflict between people maybe coloring outside the lines of the the process and structure. I've got a logistics background, so it's all about process management and, you know, supply chain efficiency. But I've come to learn that potentially some of the breaking of the rules is where new magic is formed and you never want it to happen. But actually seeing people's interpretation of systems or breaking the current systems has been some of our company's best growth periods. Have you, did you find the same yeah. with, with, as I'd imagine, different cultural challenges you would have going to different yeah. countries and the way they interpret process and strategy? So what I did, and at first it'll sound contradictory, was I created experimental programs <laughs> to follow the process. So this is the process. If you want to go outside that process, we want your ideas. Yeah. We want to hear your ideas. And if you're a top-performing region, we want to listen to your ideas. 
Now we have yeah. in our in our system, we have what we call traffic lights and they're at the member level, but they're also at the director level. So if you're in the director and you're in the green, you want to pay attention to what you have to say. But if you're in the yellow or red, if you're in the red or the gray, <laughs> get your butt back out there and follow the system. Because you don't, you're not, don't give me any new ideas. You're not making this. <laughs> so it's if really you're great. in the green, as a director, we want to hear it. And if you have a good idea, then what we have always done in BNI is we've mm. taken that idea and we've created a formal experimental, approved experimental program where they test it to see if it works. And if it works, then we expand it to test a few more regions. And if that works, then we open it to a fairly large number. And when that works, then we open it globally. You'd be shocked at the stuff in your chapter that were experimental. The education coordinator was experimental. The membership committee was experimental. The visitor host, experimental. The wow. referral reality check. These are all, for those of you who aren't in BNI, these are all integral parts yeah. of the system who we allowed experiments within a structured process to take place that made the program better. I'd imagine then that in order to manage that type of growth and experimental process, that knowing your key indicators, knowing your numbers, knowing some of these things. And I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm just reflecting while you're speaking about some members I know, some business owners I know. And for me, that's we call it here sort of the sub 5 million type business. It's all the real SME that this is probably something that's not spoken about enough, but not even taught enough. And we talk about traditional college, a lot of people coming through as technicians initially when they start their business. Yeah. But your views on this, because I'm one on measure everything. And sometimes to the point where people are sick of hearing, we want to measure it. But you must have had fairly robust measurement system and understanding your key indicators of BNI. More now than ever. Um, you got to know your numbers. And when you're talking to an entrepreneur, it's like talking to one of those um, bobblehead dolls. They're like, yeah, yeah, I know. You know numbers. No, no, you really do. And I recommend that you your key performance indicators or key success factors, whatever you want to call them, you got to limit them. You know, in BNI, we only have a handful. And these are the things that we get. I could tell you every day exactly how many members there are in the organization. I get a daily report. Daily. And I can tell you how many chat daily report. Wow. Now, when I started, it was a monthly report because it was like <laughs> me and one other person. Uh, but now, you know, the organization is big enough that it is, and we're, we, through technology, it's easier. I can literally, I, I do literally five days a week, get a report first thing in the morning telling me how many chapters there are. That's how I know there's nine. There's actually 9,722 chapters as of this morning. And I know how many members there are, which is roughly 270,000. So it's, um, I think you got to know your numbers and the numbers have to be connected to the key performance indicators. So for us, it is, you know, the number of members per chapter. What's the statistical mean? What's the, the retention rate of a chapter? And how many chapters are there? Uh, these are three of our uh, key performance indicators, and we track that stuff daily. I mean, with that all in place, is there any moment in the history of the growth of BNI that you would consider sort of breakthrough moments? I know you're fairly strategic in terms of how you're going, but I think there are probably sliding door moments for all of us where decisions that you probably reflect and go, I'm glad I made that, or wow, if we'd made that decision, it'd be different. But can you reflect on any sliding door moments for you that you think, wow, that was an incredible moment that only realized yeah. itself in reflection? 
I, I love that you use that term. It's based on a movie. Yeah. Um, I think the movie was called, was it called The Sliding Door? I think so too. I know. <laughs> yeah. So if you get a chance, go to YouTube and do a search on BNI and Sliding Door. Oh, because right. there's, there's a chapter in Italy that did like a four or five minute video. No words, but it's it's about the movie. It's like the movie, but for BNI. Oh, we'll find the link and we'll put it below. <laughs> Brilliant movie about wow. a person who had a nexus moment where they picked up a referral slip yeah. and threw it out. But in an alternate universe, they called. Anyway, yeah, there have been multiple. I think the biggest one for me was in 2010, yep. just, just 10 years ago. There have been many, but that's the biggest. And it was my decision to bring all the various platforms together that were being done worldwide and have one database system. Right. Believe it or not, we didn't have that. It, much of the world was manual. And one of the mistakes I made was letting people develop their own program, thinking the cream would rise to the top and one would stand out and I would go, Ooh, that's the one. <laughs> yeah, no. Having experiments <laughs> running everywhere. <laughs> Oh, God. And, and here's the problem. I approved them, so it's my fault. But the, the problem was all of them would die on the hill defending their version That's really interesting. of the database system. That's really interesting. And that was a massive mistake. The biggest challenge I had then was to get everybody together, point out that we cannot truly be a global organization run by silos convince them that that was a bad strategy. Diplomacy is the art of letting someone else have your way and showing them what would be possible if we could all be on the same platform and getting everyone. And I had 100% of them say yes. Wow. They didn't say yes happily, you know, but they're like, yeah, all right, I get it. You know, <laughs> as long as you consider mine. And we did, we considered all of them. As it turned out, none of them did everything that needed to be done. And so we had to start from scratch. And so we created our own database system and social media platform in-house. I don't know of any no. company in the world that did it without venture capital. We did it all in-house with wow. our, I mean, we hired outsiders, but yeah. it was all self-funded. I, I, I did have to take a pretty, pretty big loan out, <laughs> but it was, it was still me. I took a one, very few people know this. Yeah. I took a $1 million loan out to wow. have BNI Connect completed. I mean, that was, that, was, that was a nexus moment. That was a sliding door moment. And that's the only reason I can tell you we have 9,722 chapters. I mean, even, even at that stage with the relative success of BNI up to that point, I mean, that's a significant, risk is the wrong word, but it's a significant backing of your faith of the organization. I lost a little sleep right there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I probably got most of this gray hair about then. At least you got gray hair. I lost all mine and it, it wasn't as big as those decisions, that's for sure. <laughs> if I can just double back into the sliding door moment, I read a great paragraph you were talking about when you found yourself on Necker Island and from yeah. the sliding doors moment. I, the reason I really liked it is as much as it's sexy to talk about Richard Branson and all these, these wonderful things, but the thing I found quite fascinating was the process in which you got there, because I think this is missed in a yeah. lot of value. I mean, I'm, I spend my whole time talking to business owners around doing efforts in things that you might not see for a few years, but having faith that doing the right things, you can't value the impact they will have because they're not, their money can't buy opportunities. Do you mind talking a little bit around how you found yourself on Necker Island, more so the process, because I just think that in a snapshot is not only B&I, but networking and referral marketing. It's unquantifiable in my mind. 
Well, I think you can quantify it. It's harder to quantify it. Um, and the part that you're asking about is very hard to quantify. Uh, and I call this the butterfly effect of networking. Now, the butterfly effect is part of uh, the field of mathematics. There's a division called chaos theory. And it talks about the flapping of the wings of a butterfly affecting something in the environment that affects something else, that affects something else, that affects something else, that, something else, that changes the weather. It was September of 2007. I was on Necker Island, which is Richard Branson's private island. And at that time, the only place they had to access the internet was in the great room. I'm in the great room. I had a deadline for an article and my blog at that time was connected to entrepreneur.com. And they were like very firm about deadlines. There I am in the Caribbean <laughs> with literally a 300 degree view of yeah. the Caribbean. And I'm, I have to write an article and I'm, I'm totally blank. I had <laughs> no idea what I was going to write about. And I'm sitting there thinking, what am I going to write about? And up walks Sir Richard Branson. And he says, uh, what are you doing? I said, well, I got a deadline on an article. It's got to be out today. And he said, oh, well, hey, listen, I get deadlines. But we're all out, out on the beach by the pool. So when you're done, come on out and hang with us. And um, if I don't see you, uh, sit next to me at dinner tonight. I'd like to learn more about this B&I thing they got. And he left. And I remember, see, I swear to you, I sat there and I thought, damn, how did I get here? <laughs> how did I get here in this moment where a billionaire comes up and says, hey, you want to come out and play? You know, sit next to me in the lunchroom. Let's talk. And I decided in that moment, and you can find it on my blog. If you go to IvanMeisner.com yeah. and go to 2007, I wrote the blog that day. And it was, I reverse engineered how I got to the island. Wow. And that's when I came up with the butterfly effect. And it began two and a half years earlier with a solopreneur business coach, BNI member, who asked me for a favor. And I said yes for the favor, which led me to something else, which led me to go speak at a convention. That favor led to a paid speaking gig, probably six months later, which I had an opportunity to meet uh, Jack Canfield, who wrote Chicken Soup for the Soul. Mm -hmm. Jack loved my talk, and he invited me to this crazy thing he was getting started called the Transformational Leadership Council. He invited me as a founding member. So I get to hang out with Jack twice a year now. And because of TLC, I met somebody who invited me to a seminar on Nicaragua. That whole process took two and a half years. And I tell people, networking is more about farming than it is about hunting. It's about cultivating relationships. And it's a marathon, not a sprint. You've got to go in it understanding that it's about developing relationships over time. And at each one of those points, it was about me making connections with people and adding value to them. And making that connection and adding value then led me to a, a greater opportunity and a greater opportunity and a greater opportunity. And now I've been back to Necker three times now. I was just there in February. Uh, no, I'm sorry, in January. <laughs> so you're essentially, uh, January. A, you're a local resident now. No, I wish. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's a beautiful island and he's an amazing guy. Yeah. He, he's very, very easy to talk to. And, and if you go to IvanMeisner.com, go back to January, I did an interview with him on my blog. There's a video of him and I. It's obvious that you're a people person, and I'd imagine that you don't have trouble talking to anyone, and it makes sense from the type of organization you've built, but 
do you ever look at some people who are probably new or, or are new to business or new to an environment? What are some of the things you notice about people that don't quite understand the value transaction in networking because they're, I guess it's the opposite of giver's gain. They're looking for an outcome before they actually spend that time farming and nurturing. Yeah, let me, I'll, I'll get, I'll get yeah, to please. there, but let me talk about the people person thing because um, a lot of people think that only extroverts can be good at networking. And so again, on my blog, if you go back uh, years, I'll give you the title in a minute. I, I, was, uh, I wrote an article because I was sitting down at dinner with my wife, and this was probably 13, at least 10 years ago. Our two middle kids were, um, they were practicing for some play. And so it was just my wife and I. Our eldest was out of the house. It was just my wife and I. And we, you know, we didn't have that much in, in terms of uh, being together with just us. It was really nice. We were having a dinner. And I said something to her offhand about, you know me, honey, I'm an extrovert. And she looked at me, she's like, um, no, you're not. I'm like, well, of course I'm an extrovert. You know, I'm in the world's largest networking organization. I'm, like, I'm an extrovert. She said, hey, if that's what you think, that's fine. I'm like, no, come on, don't say that. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm a keynote speaker. I'm an extrovert. And she said, look, I'm reading a book right now called The Introvert and Extrovert in Love. Now, my wife's a total extrovert. And so she starts telling me how I have these introverted tendencies. And then there was one that ah, really ticked me off. She said introverts recharge their batteries by being alone. You know, family's okay, but they, they hide. They don't want to go out. So my wife, she wants to go out, you know, and for me, I hide. And I'm like, okay, that hits home, but I'm not an introvert. So I literally went into my office at home <laughs> and, I, and I got online and I found a test I could take to show her I am not an introvert. And I took this <laughs> test and he popped up and said, congratulations, Ivan Meisner, you are an introvert. Who is a situational extrovert, Probably. which they described as if you're talking about a subject you love or, or if you're hanging out with people you know well, you come across as an extrovert. Otherwise, you are generally an introvert. Now, go apologize to your wife. Okay, I didn't say that last part, <laughs> but I did. And I wrote a blog, IvanMeisner.com, OMG, I'm an introvert. That's the blog. Now, here's why it's important. Because many times people who are introverts think they can't, they don't know how to network. They, they can't, they have, they're at a disadvantage because the extroverts know how. But here's the problem with the extroverts. Extroverts have no problem meeting people and they can talk. But what's their favorite subject? <laughs> absolutely. So, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I learned years ago that a good networker has two ears and one mouth and uses them both proportionately. A good networker is like an interviewer. You're asking me questions and you're letting me elaborate. That's what a good networker is. Introverts, they just have to get past that meeting somebody. But when they get past that, they're actually better mm. at networking because they shut up and listen. They ask questions and listen. And so both have a strength, both have a weakness. And what you have to do, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, is figure out which one are you and then work on that strength and find ways to make that strength work for you and work on that weakness because it can, it can be a problem for both introverts and extroverts. It's, a, it's actually very interesting, really, reflecting in, in what you're saying. And I actually think about the people that I'm most likely to refer, and they probably are highly geared towards introverts because it's a safer referral to a business network or a trusted network because you know that they're almost going to go in caring and not do anything right. that might reflect. It's, actually, it's almost counterintuitive, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It is. And, and it made me think yeah. about the kind of organization I created. If I was an extrovert, I made it created a mixer, 
a party, <laughs> a big bash. Yeah. But I didn't like those. Yeah. You know, I wanted something more intimate, right? These are people I know, I trust, I see them regularly. I'm telling you, when I took that test, it was like, how did I not see this? Because the very organization I created is really perfect for introverts. I mean, it's yeah. good for extroverts too, but it's very welcome for introverts because you're meeting every week. You're getting to know people. Safe environment. Yeah, it fosters kindness really, doesn't it? It's quite incredible when you reflect on it like that because it's pretty difficult to have an environment that caters for not only different learning styles but different personality styles. Let me, let me ask you this then. If we were going back now and you had to rebuild the organization is there anything that you would i know you wouldn't do anything different but is there anything that if you were seeing someone else who was trying to build their business that you would maybe change your approach to or things that you may have done that you wouldn't do the same now oh uh, you know how many days is the show uh <laughs> look at individuals who've created something large and they think well you know they just they didn't make a lot of mistakes in their life. I, I made so many mistakes throughout my career. I, I had a, a friend who uh, once said to me, I, I went to him and I was like, I'm really worried. The business is growing. And I've got people's livelihoods in my hands. Mm. You know, if I screw up, uh, you know, people could lose their job. And so I'm, I, you know, I'm just, I'm a little concerned. And I remember he said to me, he gave me great advice. He said, yeah, so look, don't worry about making mistakes. You will get over it. The key is, that when you make a mistake, try to recognize it as quickly as possible. Throw yourself on the sword, acknowledge that you screwed up, and find a solution. If all you do, he didn't say this, but I believe this, if all you do is obsess over the problem, you become an expert at problems. <laughs> that's what you need to do is obsess over the solution. And that's where my dog with a bone comes in handy because yeah, I'm like, yeah. okay, I can do this. And so um, I think I would say I, I failed a lot in my business. And I always believed that I should measure myself by my successes, not my failures, and that I should use my failures as tuition for my success. And I've paid a lot of tuition. <laughs> uh, but that's, that's the way I look at it. And I think if you do that, and look, I made... Big, big seven-figure mistakes, like with the B&I Connect thing. But, you know, I, I, I think that you never have regrets. And you didn't ask me about regrets. But I think you never have regrets as long as you live your core values. It's when people get off their core values, when they say, you yeah, know, I probably shouldn't do business with this guy. Or, man, this is yeah. maybe not yeah. completely ethical. It's when they get off their core values that I think people have regrets. And if you live your core values, your personal core values, as well as your professional core values, then I think you, you shouldn't have any regrets. You might do things differently, but no regrets. With the fullness of experience, have your core values evolved somewhat since obviously the, the beginning, but have they evolved in terms of where you feel the energy is best put? Yours, I don't want to use the word heart-centered in terms of the, the core values that sort of spring out from your organization, but have they sort of reflected the changes you've personally had in your evolution? Yeah, I think so, because there's no question about it. The seven core values of BNI are absolutely, they, they resonate with me personally. Yeah. And so uh, there, there's a lot of overlap between my personal core values and the corporate core values. 
Um, but I do think that you need to have some personal values that don't, don't necessarily uh, apply to business. And I'll give you an example. I wrote a book. I don't know if you've seen it. It's called Who's in Your Room? Yep. And I mean, it's a great book. The idea is that um, the people that you let into your life are in your life or in your room forever, one yeah. way or another, They're, because <laughs> your room basically starts here and ends here. It's your head. And so they're in your head forever. And so you got to be really careful about who you let into your room or into your life. And so I think that, you know, from that perspective, I started thinking a lot more about personal values, not just corporate values. And so here's an example of a personal value that my wife and I have personally. We decided a few years ago, as I was working on this book, that our other married couple friends must, in order for them to have a, maintain a friendship, that other couple must treat each other with love and respect. Wow. They're different. Yeah. Love and respect are different. And so they have to treat each other with love and respect. And look, nobody's perfect at this. I maybe haven't always been as loving as I could be. And my wife hasn't always been as respectful as she could be. But I absolutely know that that woman loves me to death and yeah. respects me immensely. And if we have a disagreement, it's, it's you know, it's a, it's a momentary lapse. And so um, we look for other couples who treat each other that way. And it hit us quickly. We actually have a couple of friends that don't treat each other with love and respect. And um, we made the decision to all future couples that we have relationships with. That's, that's a value that's important to us. That's an incredible idea. I mean, I think a lot of us that run businesses, we live and die by our core values, but seldom do a lot of them transfer it to what they would consider outside their business life. But that's an amazing insight in terms of there really is no difference. Between personal and professional? Yeah. yeah. I mean, there are some differences. A love and respect isn't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily apply in BNI, but mm. certainly respect does. I, I think you can have personal values that maybe are a little different than your professional values. But um, in who's in your room, one of the things we do is we get people to really think about their personal values because you can't determine who should be in your room or who shouldn't be in your room unless you know what your values are. Because if you don't know your values, you're just letting anybody through this revolving door. And so what you need is a metaphorical doorman. That doorman is your conscious and subconscious mind that says, yeah, wait a minute. This person's got values that are not congruent with mine. They don't have to be the same, but they can't be incongruent. They can't be dissonant. And if you have somebody with values that are dissonant with yours, they, you know, they stay on the front porch. They don't come into your room. They don't come into your life. Where does risk at moments in your business life come into? Because I'd imagine there's a reflection of your core values and your family values and things you want to do. But a lot of our members particularly are looking to break through where they're currently at to go to the next level is, a, I guess, a new relationship with risk in their life or perceived risk, I should say. How have you dealt with those stages in life where you mentioned you had to borrow a million dollars personally to get BNI Connect up and going and things like that? How do you manage risk personally in terms of still being able to sleep at night? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I have had some sleepless nights. Over the years. Any secret uh, sauce you could give us all, please? <laughs> uh, meditation, maybe. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I, I certainly have found that to be helpful. Um, look, if you're an entrepreneur, risk is part of life. I'm kind of on a continuum on risk. If you compare me to somebody at the Department of Motor Vehicles, I take a lot of risk, right? <laughs> if you compare me to, um, you know, other entrepreneurs, I'm not real risk, a real risk taker. 
I'm somewhere in between there. I believe in taking risks on things that I feel highly confident about, that I have experience or knowledge that I think something would work. For example, being I connect, although I didn't have a lot of knowledge, I knew in my bones yeah. it was necessary. And so I was willing to take what was certainly the biggest risk of my life financially by, by taking that loan. That was huge. But, but I knew in my bones that if, if it worked, that the company would just grow and we'd be a better business. So I was willing to do it. I think you got to be willing to take risks. And here's the thing. If you're uncomfortable, you're probably doing the right thing because it's that discomfort. It's getting you out of your rut. So I, I hope my son doesn't listen to this <laughs> podcast. I'm not going to refer him to this podcast. Okay. <laughs> Uh, he started a, his own business and dad's helping yep. to get it going. Fantastic. And one day he said to me, dad, I'm really stressed out, man. You know, I don't know. This is a, you know, it's, it's a risk and, you know, there's a lot of challenges. And, and, and I, I supported him and I was there for him. And I hung up and I told my wife, Trey's really stressed out. That's awesome. <laughs> it's just like, why? I said, because if he were complacent, yeah. he'd fail. Yeah. He'd fail. Because he's gone through some tough times growing this business, but, but I'm behind him. I'm a backstop. You know, I'm not too worried. And it's good to be a little worried, not overly worried. Uh, like these days right now with COVID and the recession, people either get frozen in fear or they get focused by fear. I say get focused by fear. Let fear focus you. And if you're worried, if you're uncomfortable, that's actually a sign that you are in a place where you can make a change that will make a difference for your business. And so a little discomfort is good. Just don't get paralyzed by it. That's bad. You said something early on in the sort of COVID period. You said that you refuse to participate in a recession with such a powerful idea, which is a lot of people follow what the general populace feel yeah. as opposed to things that we probably know and understand is it's just a change in situation rather than a change in the whole thing. I mean, there are people who are going to do very well during this period, as you said, the ones that will focus rather than freeze. Has that always been your position in life when things have changed or risks come up? Have you, have you been that under your dogged determination? No, I just got diagnosed with the big C word. You know, I have to go meet my family down in San Diego at the time I lived in LA. And I remember on the drive, uh, thinking, okay, this is this is bad. And uh, the first thing I did was I was in LA traffic, so we're doing like two miles an hour, yeah. right? I had a notepad next to me, and I wrote on the crest of the top the potential positive outcomes of a cancer diagnosis. Wow! And I made a list. It's about eight or ten things, and I I can't say I was a believer, but I knew that attitude was important. And I was like, okay, I don't know if this is real or not, or, you know, if I'm just trying to make myself feel good, but I'm going to do it. Yeah. I made this list. You know what? Every single one of those, every one on that list came true. Wow. I am such a believer in mindset. I'm a believer in hope. Hope plus a plan and then action can get you through so many things. Hope is that little voice inside you whispering about what can be when everyone around you is yelling what can't be. Hope plus a plan plus action. You can get through difficult times. 
It's absolutely incredible. If we were to broadcast a message to all the entrepreneurs right now during this period, what would you like them to know in terms of your message during this? How would you guide them over the next few years of potential uncertainty? Yeah, well, disruption's here to stay. You know, this will pass and then there'll be something yeah. else. Um, so, and, and, and let's talk about the recession for a moment. I don't know, did you hear the story of how I came up with that term? I actually didn't, no. So let me, let me share it with you. 1990, it was the first recession I'd been through in BNI. So it was our first recession. Yep. I was at a business mixer. It wasn't a BNI event, business mixer. Real estate market had bottomed out. It was horrible. And I'm walking around and every, the only topic of discussion is how bad business is. I mean, it was such a depressing meeting. Everybody's complaining about how bad business is. I see some guy in a corner. I walk up, I introduce myself. I don't know why I did this, but I asked how's business. And as soon as I said, I thought, oh God, why did I ask that? Because now he's going to tell me how bad business is. And he said, oh man, business is great. And I, I saw his name tag and he was in real estate. And I said, you're in real estate? He said, yeah, yeah, business is great. I said, seriously? He said, yeah, actually I'm having my best year ever. I said, come on, is this your first year in real estate? <laughs> And he said, no, no, I've been in real estate for more than a decade. I said, how could this possibly be your best year? And I swear to you, he said, oh, I'm not wearing it. And he reached into his coat pocket and he pulled out a button. And the button said, I refuse to participate in a recession. And I looked at him and I said, really? You have a button? And so you're having a good year. And he said, no, no, no. It's, it's about the mindset that yeah. you start with. And, I, and that got my attention because I, you know, I believed in the mindset. So he said, it's about the mindset. He said, yeah, once you have that mindset, then what you have to do is focus your attention on opportunities. And I said, all right, take me to school here. What possible opportunities are there in real estate when it has dropped by 20, 25%? He said, there's two big ones. First, commercial investors. I'm going to every commercial investor I have ever met. And I'm saying, you cannot come to me two years from now and say, Oh man, I wish I'd have looked at that duplex that you were going to show me because I'm telling you, the real estate market's going to go back up and you're going to be kicking yourself. And he said, people are saying, yeah, okay, show it to me. And I'm selling commercial properties. I said, all right, that makes sense. What's the second one? He said, first time homebuyers. I'm going to first time homebuyers and I'm saying, real estate's on sale right now. You could not have bought a house a year ago. You could get into a house today at a lower interest rate than a year ago. And I'm selling more first-time homebuyers than I've ever sold in my life. And then he said, you see those people over there? Those are real estate agents. Have you talked to any of them? I said, yeah, I talked to them all. He said, they're just talking about how bad business is, aren't they? I said, they are, all of them. He said, you know what I love about that? I said, what? He said, I'm going to have half the competition next year that I have this year because they're all going to go out of the real estate business because all they're doing is focusing on how bad things are. I went out after that conversation and I made thousands of buttons that said, I refuse to participate in a recession. And I think it begins with the mindset. And then you got to, whatever business you're in, you got to look at what opportunities there are. And there are opportunities out there. Incredible. And and just as we finish up and we've touched on a bit with meditation being a tool you use and, and mindset, but how have you how have you noticed personally your mindsets shifted over the last so many years? Do you feel an evolution in terms of the strength of your mindset or what can now rattle you that may have been easier in the, the years previous? Yeah, well I used to get rattled a lot easier. I, I was t- <laughs> I told this to Jack Andrew today. You know, I told Jack in my old age I'm getting a little more mellow. 
And he be, completely blew my great feeling by saying, yeah, I mean, you're getting old and you have less testosterone. And that's why, <laughs> that's why you're a big teddy bear. That's why grandpas are great because you know, they're so easy going. Uh, so there's probably a little of that. Yeah. Um, I think what uh, has really changed in me over the years is that I've recognized that being that dog with a bone is good, but you can also go too far and, and worry too much. I think I learned over the years that at some point when you've worked it out to the best of your ability, you just got to let it go and let the universe take the direction it's going to take with your guidance and involvement. But you just, you know, if you're just constantly worrying, what kind of life do you have? And I think that's probably the thing that I struggled with a lot for many years was worrying too much, which, by the way, may have been one of the contributing factors to why I got cancer. So um, maybe. So anyway, I think that's one thing that's yeah. changed me. Uh, you know, I'm living, I'm living the life now. I think an entrepreneur is either working in their flame or working in their wax. When they're in their flame, they're, they're on fire. They're passionate. They love what they're doing. You can hear it in their voice. You can see it in the way they behave. When they're working in their wax, it just takes all their energy away. You can hear that in their voice too. Uh, this is my flame. We're doing my flame. I love doing interviews. I love talking to members. I love talking to directors. Um, I think I told you before we went on air that uh, I'm the Colonel Sanders of BNI now. So. <laughs> Great, I love this. Absolutely brilliant, and I I want to thank you for your time and and being so open with us. And I I want to I want to finish with this question, which is with the whole mantra of give it gain that your organization's rolled out globally. What can me and my listeners do for you? What are the oh, things? Oh, well, that's very kind of you. And, thank and, you so much. No, because I think it's important, and we'll put obviously your books and and things like that. But I I know there's a there's a a higher purpose for the, the the type of guy you are is there what can we do as entrepreneurs as business people as supporters to um help you out at the moment well i i appreciate that certainly go to bni you know come to come to my blog uh, check out the stuff i've got there i think you know in general people should be trying to be there for each other to support one another to help one another you may not be able to help everyone but you can help someone and so look for those opportunities to help people. You're asking how you, you know, I love doing interviews. Anybody that's got a podcast, I'm happy to talk to them about doing a podcast or an interview. You know, I say work in your flame. So you need to find to your audience, I say, find your flame, work in that flame. This is mine. I'm happy to do interviews to anyone that's looking to do podcast or interviews. I just want to ask you one question. We're yeah. obviously building a community around the concept of being backable. You yourself and the BNI system are immensely backable. What does backable mean to you? Well, that, well, that's a great question. Uh, to me, uh, I would think that it's about being a business that people would be supportive of. If you're backable, that means you got people behind you who have your back. It's me for my son and his business. I got his back. It's you know, it certainly was. It's me for my directors. I'd like to think it's me for my members. I, you know, I, I I want to see my members be successful, and so it's about people that have your back or are willing to have your back. Exactly. Thank you, Dr. Meisner. Thank you. It's been an incredible opportunity to speak to you, and thank you for all you've done. Because I know without BNI, without small business, without being the father of modern networking, as as we know you through the media. Your contribution to businesses, I don't believe measurable. So thanks again for everything that you've done and sacrificed to get all of us here. I appreciate that more than you know. Thank you.
Well, that's the show for this week. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the episode. You can find out more about Dr. Meisner, BNI, or get one of his numerous books, including his latest release, Who's in Your Room, via the links below. Now, while you're searching the interwebs, why not head on over to backable.ai to access all the downloadables we put together. And don't forget to like, subscribe, share, and if you have a minute, leave a review for the Backable podcast. Lastly, if you want to stay up to date with all things Backable and Philodomo, why not join our Facebook group and follow us on one or all of the platforms you can find in the show description below. That's all from us from now. Have a great week, and we look forward to speaking with you next week. Bye.